0: Now uh, another episode of Burp Along with Sean. Well, I guess that's the way thing <gasps> uh excuse me. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for the Pie Factory Podcast. Well, heidi ho there, friends and neighborinos, and uh, you've tuned in to the Bi factory podcast episode number 39 uh, yeah this is uh this is your host uh know, gotta come up with a name now damn it um super Sean, no. spinning the hits no. yeah screw it. this is your host super Sean, spinning the hits coming from oh, for- no 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 no, oh, yeah, yeah, no i think you just no, hit no, on it no oh this is screw it sean this is Screw It, Sean, spinning the hits, coming to you live from the home office in Bucks North, Pennsylvania. It' hey, coming to you from the logistics center in Floyd's Knob, Indiana. This is Jimmy G, and this is oh, I already said who I am. Sorry, never mind. Screw It, Sean. Yeah, did did we see what the what the uh, podcast? Is? Oh yeah, High Factory said that already.
1: Yeah, we did. We are forgetful today, or is it just the uh, our voice, our. our are, uh, uh, ah, screw it. I can't. Uh. No, that's me. No, oh, that's for you. Yeah, it's tr- that's true. That's true. Hey, do you I. have a sponsor this week? Because no. if you remember, oh, hell no,
0: um, hell no. Nobody wants to pay money for me.
1: How do you know? Wink, wink. Uh. So, how are you? <coughs> I, 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 <clears throat> you? Wait, hold on, hold on, hold on. I'm, I'm not interested in how you are because you're hosting, you're supposed to be interested in how I am. That's how, this kind of, this how, that's how this relationship works, yeah, right? Yeah, but
0: the thing is, I'm not interested in how you are. I'm not going to pretend.
1: I has a sad. What does it mean to has a sad? I don't know. You, you ask all the kitten memes that I'm seeing on Facebook. I has a sad. Bork, bork, you are doing me a frighten. Now we're just going to get into all of the Facebook cute animal meme pages now.
0: If you want us to stop, then say amen.
1: I didn't hear amen.
0: Mm-hmm. So we're just gonna yeah. going to
1: keep going, rolling, going, rolling, going. And they didn't like and share the post either. So uh, that little kid in Tanzania is not going to get that little heart transplant that nope. he needs. You
0: oh, sick shut... bastards! Yep, that's it's a shame what society has come down to.
1: Yeah, I know. Back in my day, we got likes and shares. And whenever anybody needed a heart transplant or an operation, people would be always there to give us likes and shares just for the common good of society. Now you can't just get people interested to like or share things, you know? Yeah, what the hell? I know, man. What is a society calling to?
0: Oh, I'm I'm, Uh, afraid to find out.
1: I'm so worked up about it. We should probably just move on.
0: So, have you any, uh, say, news, perhaps, for our uh, game-playing listeners? Ah, uh, not really. Good, because that means it'll be easier to record. It'll be a short show. he will have it done tomorrow. Bam.
1: Bam. I have been playing uh, my Raspberry Pi again.
0: I've been oh. playing the hell out of The Legend
1: of Zelda 2 on it. I still haven't
0: gotten past the first one. I, I, can, I haven't gotten past, like, maybe it's because I don't play with a map. You're supposed to use a map, right?
1: You don't need one, but, uh, yeah, a map will definitely help out, especially with all of the hidden stuff that you really kind of need to find. I remember the first time me and my brother played it, we didn't have a map. And once we got, there was a certain candle and what, and, uh, when we got the bombs, we were burning all of the bushes, uh, such as it were, and, uh, blowing up, uh, rocks to find all of the different hidden secrets in the game. But eventually we found a map and, uh, we got right through it. It's funny, um... (laughs) <laughs> the angry video game nerd did a uh, an episode he did an episode about the Nintendo power glove and how it was like a, you know, a crappy thing and and whatever and, and and how it was just just a horrible contraption and then later on he did a thing about the Legend of Zelda 2 which he likes the game but most people a lot of people don't like it so he figured he had to cover it and he keeps going back to the fact that he could never beat the last boss and he's like well I don't have anything to lose at this point I'll just put on the the power glove and he was just getting his ass kicked then he looks back at the camera and he's like well that's it i'm never going to beat legend of zelda 2 what he doesn't see in the background is that even though he's got the power glove on he's not really doing anything with it he's kicking the ass of the last boss he turns the tv off then he go, runs right back and turns the tv on and sees that he actually defeated him That <laughs> was that's a great episode uh since we're talking about legend of zelda a little bit here I ran into this years ago, and it's still being updated for different different uh, PCs. I, I know there's a Linux version of this, and I believe there is a Mac version. It's called Zelda Classic. It's at zeldaclassic.com. It is a public domain implementation of The Legend of Zelda, and it's got a construction kit with it, so you can create your own Legend of Zelda maps and all that. So if you're interested in that sort of thing, you might want to... Look into it. It's at ZeldaClassic.com, and I, it is confirmed. They do have a Windows version, a Linux version, and a Mac OS X version. OS so, uh, Oh, I'm sorry, OS X. Next thing you know, you'll tell me my favorite one of my favorite King X albums is called 15, even though the title clearly is XV.
0: There's this computer show in New York City called The Personal Computer Show in which the main host says, "Well, I'm just going to call it OS X cuz nobody agrees what it is." Um, actually, if you were to install the latest version of it, which is El Capitan, there's actually a voice that says OS 10. So there, well, take them apples, Hank. Is that a thing to say? Take them apples. Mm, I don't know. Yeah. Well, That's it's a good Monday. question. What do you expect? Well, yeah. actually it's Tuesday. I was off yesterday, so today's my Monday. Well, aren't you special? Yeah, yeah. But uh, going on a more serious note, uh, this was kind of a bizarre coincidence, but uh, last episode, the, probably the very first thing we discussed was uh, we discussed National Suicide Prevention Week. And it's it's a topic that, uh, that Jimmy G and I both take pretty damn seriously. And um, what was really kind of... Scary was just literally a few hours before the episode was released. I had kind of seen a friend. Actually, I think it's one of your friends, too. Now that I think about it, uh, actually like contemplate suicide online. He was literally just minutes away from killing himself. And it was a pretty frightening thing to, uh, to see him go through. It felt kind of helpless, too, because there wasn't much I could do kind of a long distance friend don't live anywhere near him it's not like I could have like rushed over and helped him didn't know a phone number or anything and it was just a pretty frightening thing and it was it was just he was going through some really really terrible stuff and uh, all I know is I woke up the next morning and I saw that he had posted on Facebook he's he said I have the best friends around thanks so much everybody I feel really embarrassed and things and I don't I don't think there was necessarily anything to feel embarrassed about, but it was, ah, man. I just thought, wow, it's uh, pretty uh, interesting that we're about to release an episode where we talked about what we talked about.
1: In that episode, I said that uh, there's the stigma attached to it, where people say that uh, contemplating suicide is, or depression is selfish, and you should get over yourself. You're being selfish, and I'm like, yes, depression might be selfish, but it's okay to be selfish in, in these sort of situations. But, um, he said he felt embarrassed. It's the same thing. There's nothing to be, to feel embarrassed about. There's no need to apologize for feeling that you embarrassed yourself. There's no need to apologize for feeling that you're selfish. There's no need to apologize for anything. It, it's, it's happening to you and express it however you feel you need to, as long as you're not harming yourself or others. And that's what it boils down to. I mean, there's all kinds of help out there for you. And um, it's interesting you mentioned that because we had some uh, actual responses to it. There's one person sent us a message. He basically had somebody say to him, like, wow, I'm glad it's not me. And, And he just, yeah, thanks, buddy. That really helps. It's nothing to play around with. Um, one thing I've been doing lately is uh, I've been watching a lot of uh, videos from a guy called the Cinema Snob. Uh, guy's name is Brad Jones. He's actually based out of Springfield, Illinois. And um, back about five months ago, he released a video about uh, it was it's about a forty minute long video entitled "The Time I Almost Committed Suicide." And uh, I was watching that today, and uh, he tackles the situation with his with his uh, with his With uh, openness, frankness, also with a nice uh, side dish of his sense of humor, if you will. And um, it's interesting. He was talking about how he actually wound up in the hospital. And for whatever reason, the TVs in the room he was in in the hospital were only getting horror films. He was watching Scream and uh, what was the other one that was on there? But it was just like all horror films. And he's like, normally I would be all into this, but I'm thinking. He was like, I'm thinking right now, this is probably not a good thing for me to be watching. <laughs> but you might want to check it out. It's on the the Cinema Snob page on YouTube, and uh, it's 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 certainly worth a watch.
0: And one other thing I just wanted to say about that is we left that little bit uncensored. Uh, we specifically mm-hmm. asked Hyde don't. Don't bleep that, uh, basically because we felt that if that had been bleeped, the message wouldn't have been taken seriously or at least as seriously. So if anybody was offended because of a certain word, because after all, words can lose the war for the allies, you know, sorry. No, seriously, we just felt that it would kind of cheapen the message if there was a big old beep right in the middle of it. So uh, we we didn't hear any complaints, but still, you know, I just wanted to say it. I suppose we probably could have worded it in a different way, but um,
1: you, sometimes you just got to let the words flow as sometimes. they come to you for certain situations, you know? Yep. I mean, we could do all... we. <laughs> you should hear the way me and Sean talk in regular life. You wouldn't believe uh, the words that we have to hold back when we record the main part of our show. We don't try to be uh, G-rated, but we don't try to be R-rated either. We don't talk about many different things, which I'm not going to say here. We, we try to be PG, PG-13, you know. We, we like to give our listeners a little more credit than... Man, I can't say that. That's not really fair because you could do a good show when you're using a lot of language just as you could do a great show when you're using no language at all. I mean, our friend uh, Phil the No Swear Gamer proves that. But my point is that one of the few things I agree with Rush Limbaugh on is words mean things. And um, you need to use the words as they're coming to you if that's how you feel. If it expresses your feelings, if it expresses your emotions properly. So there. So there. Yeah, we just hope we did our little bit to raise awareness of the topic. And apparently it is also Suicide Prevention Month or it's uh, Mental Illness Awareness Month or Depression Awareness Month. It's one of those two also for September, which I just find it interesting for... uh, September being my birth month and all, and you're just outside September, so.
0: Yeah, but I got married in the middle of September, though. Well, that's true. And yeah, anybody who listens to the two of us together looks like, yeah, these guys are the poster children for mental health. Yeah.
1: You know, I was talking about how we talk when we uh, we get together in person or whatever, and quite frankly, <laughs> sometimes I'm shocked by the stuff I hear coming out of your mouth, because it's it just... When I'm around you, I've known you for so long. I don't don't
0: talk any differently from anybody else except my grammar is a little better. But anyway, why don't we talk about some uh, topical matter? Oh, one thing I do. I think I mentioned this before, but those of you who will be in the Chicago area uh, on October 8th. Hey, come on to uh, come on over to Underground Retrocade at 121 West Main Street, West Dundee, Illinois. Why? Just to play some games. That's all. Hey, I'm celebrating my birthday a few days late by vegging out in video games. So And you're going Dutch.: No, I'm going uh, Russian, Lithuanian and Irish. Hmm. Anyway, I'll be there that day. and, and
1: uh, I'm most likely going to be there that day.
0: I might try to increase my Junior Pac-Man world record, by the way. Junior Pac-Man Turbo.
1: And I'm going to try to get 200,000 on gyrus. Ooh. Yeah, I probably won't do it, but I'm gonna try,
0: and then maybe I'll celebrate with some uh, with some frozen custard over at Vans too. But I I like Vans, and I like Underground Retrocade very much. Oh, and speaking of world record, uh, have you heard the latest edition of the Atari 2600 Game by Game podcast?
1: Yes, I did. That is the Phil takeover.
0: Yes, yes. This is something that Phil did. I figured, hey, why not do this now? Phil was talking about his world record on tax avoiders and how he submitted it to uh, Twin Galaxies and everything. This is a little bit premature because we haven't submitted it yet, but Jimmy G and I have a couple of world record attempts on the 7800 that we're going to be submitting to Twin Galaxies in the near future. Mm -hmm. Um, It's called When Screw It, Sean decides to finally dig out the SD card from the camera, I figured, hey, Phil gave some wonderful advice as to how to submit home games on Twin Galaxies, so we might as well talk about the same thing, but with uh, arcade games. I've now that I've had personal experience with it.
1: I loved his first piece of advice: don't underestimate the power of cash. That's that's some really good advice. Yes, of course,
0: and lots of swearing if you don't get your way too.
1: Yes, and coming from him, that was some interesting advice. Yeah, of course.
0: Anyway, if you heard the 2600 Game by Game podcast, the advice I have is very similar to what Phil says. What you want to do is obviously you want video of your entire performance, start to finish. What you're going to do is if you don't have an account at Twin Galaxies, you're going to go create one. It's free. There's no charge to use Twin Galaxies at all. You are given what's called three submission points, which allows you to submit a world record attempt. Or it doesn't even have to be a world record attempt. It could just be a score that you want adjudicated officially. And then what happens is people who use Twin Galaxies, other people like yourself, they're going to watch your submission and basically judge for themselves whether or not the submission is good enough to be accepted. What they're going to look for is start to finish gameplay. And they're also going to want to see if it's an arcade game. They're going to want to see the system board and the dip switches just to verify that you're actually using a real arcade machine and you're not emulating.
1: You ran in some, into some uh, issues with that when you uh, submitted your what was it, Junior Pack Turbo?
0: Yeah, because I didn't. I submitted it, but I didn't have anything from the cabinet. It was just the actual gameplay which people were able to verify was indeed set for certain things, was set for the exact settings they needed. The problem is people were a little bit hesitant to vote yes on it because for all they knew, I could have been emulating it because they didn't see the system board. They didn't see the startup screen. Basically, any piece of evidence you can submit is great. Show the game starting up. Show the panel, the control panel. Show the system board show the dip switches a lot of people voted it up pete han from galloping ghost vouched for me basically he's got a good Clout. reputation and the problem is i again i did not have sufficient proof that i was indeed playing the real machine so next time i was at uh, underground retrocade i got to uh do the honors and just pan a camera over all the set all the uh the guts and everything so he did that for me i posted a link to that video and then almost immediately my submission got accepted so that's basically how you submit a world record attempt you gotta submit a complete start to finish video of your game ideally with all the proof you possibly can that you're really playing on the real machine with the settings that are prescribed for that particular track and then what happens other people are gonna vote on whether or not it's a good submission, and after a certain number of people with certain, uh, a certain total of what they call reputation points votes, that basically determines whether it's accepted or not. And after that, you used up your three submission points, and you have to get more submission points if you want to submit more scores. How do you get more submission points? You get more submission points by adjudicating other people's videos and voting them up or voting them down. And for every vote you give that is decided on, if, it, if the final vote agrees with you, you get a submission point, and you also get reputation points. And the more reputation points you have, the more influence your vote has on whether or not a uh, submission is actually accepted. If you are wrong with your vote, you actually are docked a ton of credibility points. I don't know. That's all I had to say about that, so... I will make sure that everybody knows when we post our um, 7,800 world record attempts that we performed mm-hmm. at uh, Video Game Summit. So, indeed, that's what I wanted to say about that, uh, uh, James G. What do you have to say, Burma? Thank you, but it's now called Myanmar. How about we talk about some uh, Addenda and Errata? How about that? And go. And go! <laughs> oh, Jimmy G, Jimmy G, have you any addenda and errata?
1: Well, I do have a note from
0: Cinecaster uh, off of the Atariate <laughs> Forum. Oh, God, Cinecast! Oh, okay, go ahead.
1: <clears throat> and he says, Regarding the initial discussion on the show about the first boss in an arcade game, I've got a different tape on that subject. Personally, I'm not convinced that the paradigm of video game boss as we know and love it today traces back to the likes of Phoenix or Gorf. I think the boss really became a trope with the advent of non-fixed game screens, such as scrolling shooters, platformers, and beat-em-ups, where you progress to a point along a continuum and battle a boss to mark the end of state, level, or world. In games like Phoenix and Gorf you face off against a large ship as part of a standalone screen in the game, yes, in retrospect, it looks a bit like a boss, but was it really? Or was it just an idea for a standalone fourth screen that that programmer came up with that would loop with increasing difficulty just like all the other screens? For me, I feel like my first boss encounter was the first time I came to the mothership on Xevious. I thought that was so damn cool and nothing like I'd ever seen before in a game. Any time after that, when I'd come to a boss in a scrolling shooter game, like a big war in 1943, for example, I'd be able to sense the debt owed to Xevious, whether real or imagined, just my two cents. Good day!
0: Wait, was that actually a recording of Cinecaster? It sounded just like him.
1: Yeah, that was an actual recording of Cinecaster. Oh, well
0: thank you, Cinecaster. Yeah.
1: Well, thank you for the note, um... Uh, I don't know, because it seems to me that the only requirement for a boss would be to present a challenge at the end of a round, whether it be a series of fixed screens or a scrolling screen. In games like... The Legend of Zelda, I think, puts an interesting spin on that, because the screens are all fixed. They don't really scroll in that game.
0: They're broken in my version.
1: Well, oh, you're kind of stuck on a screen with the boss. Uh, in Xevious, yeah, the screen scrolls while the mothership is there, but I don't know. I, I I think a boss is just a, a one big challenge at the end of the round or the game. If you look at it in terms of movie, it's like the boss character provides the end of film or end of experience or whatever challenge that the hero or protagonist has to get past. And I feel that's... Uh, what was I going to say? Aardvark. I, Aardvark. Burma! I think the, the boss character just kind of doesn't necessarily... Hinge on that. As I said, it's just basically the final conflict that does, well, in a story for the most part. And uh, that's my opinion on that.
0: Well, I have a um, erotica. Well, it's more, uh, I don't know what you, what you would call this. This is kind of a follow up to a previous addendum. Mm. In episode 38, I had talked about how I found a bug in Gorf. Mm -hmm. And I saw this in at least two different Gorf machines where under certain circumstances, if you move your ship to a certain exact pixel on the screen, you just die right away. I actually do have some some uh, information on what causes that. Uh, This is from uh, from someone who actually has a Gorf machine that does that from time to time. Basically, here's what we found out about the bug. It's not. A bug per se, at least not a software bug. Uh, what we have found out is that this pixel problem I'm talking about it can happen on any machine, which makes sense because I've seen it on more than one. The technical platform, I guess you'd call it, on which Gorf is built includes a cage that contains several PC boards and um, because of the construction because of the way it's built like that there are several what they call points of failure possible places where something could go wrong and in the instance of the gorf situation uh, it can happen as a result of perhaps an insufficient five volts bad ram the ram isn't clearing or something so it thinks there's still something on that particular location but what can be a real problem is just basically pinpoint the location of the problem, especially if it's intermittent, like it actually does seem with Gorf a uh, case in point. I was recently an underground retrocade. Suddenly I could no longer reproduce the problem. I was playing. Unfortunately, I couldn't reproduce any of my crappy scores because I was performing even crappier than usual. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, Basically, on, on one of the machines that we played, what happened was they've already started looking into the problem. Uh, the owner of the machine already started by replacing the power supply and started doing some work on the memory board. And so now that problem only comes up every once in a while. And uh, basically, there are plans for a complete memory upgrade on that particular machine. I kind of tried to sum up the explanation that I was given. I hope I did a decent job of it. <laughs> Long story short, this is the way that I interpret it, is that Gorf machines can be prone to annoying problems due to the overall construction, and there are ways to fix it.
1: It seems to me it, that it's weird that that sort of thing would only cause, like, a one little pixel glitch.
0: Yeah, weird things happen. But, oh, you know what? Something else that I that I was thinking of, a addendum for Gorf. Totally forgot to mention this, but apparently... The voice synthesis in Gorf was available in other languages. I wasn't able to get a ROM to test that, but I had wondered, since we know for a fact that Berserk was available in multiple languages, but I had wondered about Gorf, and I remember doing some research, I think there was a French version as well, I think. I wasn't able to locate it or test it, but... Jimmy G, do you have anything? No, that's pretty much about it. Good, because I have a lot more. Uh Uh-oh. I have a ton of timber addenda and errata, actually. Really? Yeah. We talked about timber the previous episode. One thing that I am very surprised, neither of us, as musical as we are, notice I didn't say musically talented, I just said musical, (laughs) we didn't pick up on this. If the bear throws the bees at you and you get caught in the bees, you get stung, you actually hear a few seconds of flight of the bumblebee. Mm-hmm. I didn't know. I never noticed that. And I was like, wait a minute. Until until I, I was playing the hell out of this after we recorded the episode. And I was like, wait, why did I not notice that? That is a pretty common thing to use in video games, Flight of the Bumblebee, obviously because it's public domain. But uh, Roadrunner uses it, I think. Didn't some other game use Flight of the Bumblebee, too? Yes.
1: Uh, Roadrunner. Yeah, I said Roadrunner. No! Uh, other than Roadrunner, I don't know. I'm sure there has to be something there. You'd think the obvious choice would be Crystal Castles, but I know it didn't use yeah, it.
0: Yeah, I was thinking that too, but no, I don't think there's any real music in there other than the Smurfberry Crunch jingle.
1: Yeah, no, there there really wasn't.
0: But other timber errata, addenda, or whatever you want to call it here, we had said before, there was a little slip of the tongue here, we had said that... A little uh, slit? What? Yeah, I knew you were going to say something. It was said that... You get a thousand points per second in the bonus counter. Um, no, it's a hundred points per second, actually.
1: It is a hundred. A thousand counter. seemed yeah. a l- quite a bit of points.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's a it's, it's hundred each. Oh, and I finally was able to finish the bonus round. Yay. Yay. I was able to actually finish the first two. Then, once the log got thinner than that, I was not able to finish it at all. But the first two bonus rounds I can actually do now. And something that uh, we didn't mention is that if you finish the bonus round in Timber, uh, the Lumberjack takes a few bows. And something that I've discovered is that um, you can actually fall off the log once the time runs all the way out. If that happens, you do not get the 1,000-point completion bonus. You actually have to make it all the way to the point where he takes a bow. What's really weird is like, for example, the oh, and this is another thing here. It was said that the um, the bonus round is uh, the timer is set at forty five seconds. No, 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 no. It starts at twenty seconds and then gradually increases every other uh, with every bonus round after that. Like the first one is first one or two of them are twenty seconds. Then it goes up to twenty five seconds, and it goes up from there.
1: So you're saying my source was wrong. Your source was wrong. Oh yeah. Uh oh.
0: But what happens is if you actually run out of time, like let's say that you're on the first bonus round, you use up all the time, and then before you take a bow, you suddenly fall off the thing, it actually says that you lasted 21 seconds, even though it's only a 20-second countdown. So I found that to be very interesting.
1: Huh. I bet what it is is it hits zero, but it still thinks it's got another second to go.
0: That might be exactly what it is, and since there was a... uh, I'm not even going to say because I can't think now. Uh, one other thing, we said that um, when time runs out, the boss gets so mad he creates an earthquake. Um, not really. He doesn't even really get mad. All he does is he blows the whistle. And there's not really an earthquake, but it startles the the lumberjack so much that he's kind of stunned. And he kind of like bounces around for because of the sound of the whistle. That's what that is. Ah. Yeah. Already. So, And finally, and this is something that I I never crossed my mind. My wife saw me play Timber, and she thought it was a Mario ripoff. Really? Yeah. Cause the lo- I could see where she would think that. So it kind of makes me wonder if that Mike Ferris story is a cover-up. And now think about this. This is actually plausible, because what color clothes does Player Two wear? Blue. What color clothes does Luigi wear? Green. You sure about that? Yeah, he wears green.
1: Luigi's always been green. He might have a blue shirt underneath, but his primary color is green.
0: Oh, okay, I guess you're... Hmm.
1: And Mario wears a blue shirt underneath his red coveralls, and then Luigi wears a blue shirt underneath his green coveralls. Well, actually, his coveralls are blue and his shirt's green. Are you sure on that?
0: I'm looking at a picture. Hold on.
1: Oh, yeah, you are right. But his primary color that you identify with him is green. Now that I look at... Well, here's okay, a picture yeah. Here's a picture of the pixelated Luigi where he's wearing green coveralls and a dark green shirt. Ah,
0: I thought I was onto something.
1: But pretty much every other image is he's wearing the blue coveralls and the green shirt. I thought
0: I was so smart. I thought it worked.
1: And here's a sexy picture of Luigi where he's wearing blue jeans and nothing else. Hmm. Link in the show notes. Oh, and here's something for your lady, a sexy Luigi Halloween costume. Something really bizarre about that.
0: Well, you don't find Luigi sexy? Not anymore. Oh, okay. Because so I was gonna say don't you know, hurt poor Luigi, you know? I'm sorry, Luigi, you're just not sexy. Good day.
1: Oh, and here's interesting, it's In Super Mario Brothers, the original one, he's wearing a green shirt and white coveralls. Hmm. So his shirt's always green, he's just I guess. Depends on whether it's before or after Labor Day, is the color of his coveralls.
0: Okay, now when is it no longer after Labor Day? I
1: could probably think the day after Labor Day.
0: So the day after Labor Day is no longer after Labor Day. See, that's it, it goes I don't back know. to the whole Gremlins thing about how you're not supposed to feed your mogwai after midnight. That's true. Well, at, at what point is it no longer after midnight, though? They're probably the unwritten rule in that case is dawn. And which time zone? And what if you live somewhere where they don't observe daylight saving time? MY BRAIN HURTS! Anyway, that's all I had for Adenda and Errata. I believe you already said you ain't got no Adenda and Errata left after that, right? 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 Ain't nobody got time
1: for Adenda and Errata.
0: <sighs> I guess that's the way things happen, isn't it, now?
1: I guess you're right.
0: How about we talk about a game? I wanna talk about Le Bagnard. Le Bagnard. La Bagnarde. Ah le bagnard. Ah mon Dieu. The convict. Ah oui. The convict. Bagman. Or Bagman, as we call it in English. Developed by Valadon Automation, although it's probably pronounced Valadon because I believe they are French. Oh, and this oh, was oh. from 1982, licensed to Stern for release in the United States. So what is Bagman all about? (laughs) Some of you probably already know. Some of you might not know all about Bagman. But in Bagman, you are the Bagman, which actually, I think the convict is a little bit more accurate because he wears a striped shirt like a convict would.
1: Granted, it's red and white. But that's probably oh but it could what be they because dress up French. like in
0: France. Exactly, exactly. But you are moving the bagman as it were through a maze of mine shafts. Your job is to collect the bags of gold. Uh, you know they are bags of gold because they have dollar signs on them. So Well, of course. Even though they probably would not use dollar signs in France because their currency at the time was francs. And it's gold, so you probably wouldn't even put that symbol on it. But I don't know. I don't know how who, who made these decisions. But you got to collect bags of gold and deposit these bags of gold into a wheelbarrow that is located at the top of the screen. And there is a bonus timer that counts down from 4,000. And every time you put a bag of gold in the wheelbarrow, the timer resets and you get whatever bonus points are left on the timer. Sounds easy enough, doesn't it? Why, sure it does. Well, good. So keep listening there, Skippy, because most of these bags of gold are yellow. However, there's also a blue bag, a blue bag of gold that's worth even more points. You put the blue bag of gold into the wheelbarrow and you actually get double the bonus points. There's a little catch about that blue bag, though. Uh, I believe it is. It's in the second screen that you get three different screens per level oriented horizontally you start off on the far left and then you go right one screen and you go right another screen i believe the blue bag is on the second screen i believe you are correct and it is actually behind a wall of dirt that you actually have to dig out how do you dig out the wall of dirt well there is a pickaxe that you can grab and what you do is you run at the wall with your pickaxe and one time it'll swipe away some dirt so you have to go with the wall one more time And swipe way more dirt. And then another time, swipe more dirt. And then another time, swipe more dirt. So you basically have to run into the wall four times with the pickaxe to be able to enter it and grab the blue bag of gold. And while you are carrying a bag of gold, you actually move a little bit slower than you normally do. If you're carrying a blue bag, you slow down even more than usual. Now think about this, Jimmy G. Hmm. And what other game do you slow down when you are collecting something? Super Bagman. Super Bagman, yay! And what other game that predates Bagman? You slow down when you carry something. Or when you collect something, I should say. You collect something. I'm
1: drawing a blank off the top of my head. A game called Pac-Man. Oh, and And Ms. Pac-Man. And And Junior Pac-Man, which is
0: where I'm going with this. Also... In Bagman, if you grab the blue bag, remember, you slow down even more than you slow down if it's a yellow bag. So, hey, there's another Junior Pac-Man parallel, even though this game predates Junior Pac-Man. So, ah. hmm, you got to wonder.
1: They're time you got to wonder if
0: Midway might have uh, gotten a little bit of influence there. In fact, there's a lot of Pac-Man vibe in this game, really, when you think about it. But we'll get to that in a moment. But anyway, um, this all sounds great. Hey, collect bags of gold, throw them in a wheelbarrow, get points, and... Sounds easy. Sounds fun, right?
1: Why, yes. It sounds very easy. Yeah.
0: Oh, except that I forgot one thing. There are some mine guards. There are some guards that are going to try to stop you. And you only have two defenses against the guards. One of those defenses, you can drop bags of gold on them, assuming you are moving up or down, like you're climbing a ladder or something. You can drop a bag of gold on a guard... Or you can use a pickaxe to basically knock out a guard. Either way, the guard is only going to be rendered unconscious stunned. for a few seconds. So uh. He's stunned. Very stunned. Oh, but that is no. not all there, Jimmy G. You know what else could get could get in your way? What is that? Termite. Oh, wait. No, not, ter- not in this game. They don't have termites in this game. They have mine carts that continually move back and forth across the mine on tracks. Yay, what do I win? You win a lost life if a minecart runs into you, yay. And this is where things get a little bit unfair. The guards are immune to minecarts, but you're not. Explain that. I can't.
1: Say. Oh? I would think that a minecart might help you in some certain situations, though. Do tell. Well, on the ceilings of some of these corridors are a little hook. Now, one thing we hadn't mentioned out the controls for this game, I do believe we haven't done that no. yet. You have a joystick and an action button.
0: Uh, you have two action buttons.
1: Are you sure about yes,
0: that? Yes, I am. One on the left, one on the right.
1: Oh, I see what you're saying. You're Aha. doing the whole ambidextrous thing there. That's right. So if you're standing under one of these little hooks in the ceiling and you press the action button, you will lift your, yourself up. And a, if a minecart comes underneath you and you push the action button again... You can ride the minecart. And I believe as long as you're in the minecart, you are invincible from the guards.
0: You know what? I got something to say about that. I okay. swear, every time I played Bagman, I would still lose a life if I crossed paths with a guard while riding a minecart. I swear. But. I don't know if that's true. Well, here's the thing. I swear that's. Because I was. I, I didn't get a chance to check, but I did watch a playthrough video, and I saw the guy was just whizzing right by the mine guards. I was like, what the hell? I swear. I can't do that.
1: But you know, there are two ways to get out of the minecart when you're done. You can either press the action button when you're underneath one of the hooks, or press the joystick in the direction opposite the minecart is traveling. But you must be careful, because you don't want to do that if you're right near the edge of a cliff, because then you can fall to your
0: doom. Oh, you know you know what else can happen? A guard can fall to his doom. Mm-hmm. Except the guard's doom only lasts a few seconds.
1: And... Uh, if you accidentally push the joystick the direction the cart is traveling, you will lose a life. So you got to watch out for that.
0: Wait, watch out for what, snakes?
1: Watch out for snakes! And you say I repeat jokes. So tell me more about this game.
0: Oh, yes, yes, I would absolutely uh, love to. Uh, here's what's going on. Uh, how else may you lose a life? Well, allowing the bonus counter to run out all the way. When the bonus counter reaches 400, as a warning, you'll hear some music start up. I believe that's uh, how you can lose a life in Bagman. Is there any other way? I don't think so.
1: Uh, Minecart, running mine out cart- of time, touching a guard, falling to your death.
0: Yep, that's about it.
1: Now, you were saying about the hammers or the pickaxes, if you will. Pickaxes. Uh, you can only carry them for so long before they disappear. And if you kill a guard with it, the pickaxe will disappear.
0: Well, you, you can't really kill the guard because the guard comes well, back. Well,
1: they stun. yeah. But the uh, you will lose the pickaxe then. Uh, one strategy I noticed in a playthrough that I was watching on YouTube was he keeps picking up and dropping the hammer. Unlike Donkey Kong, where you have to wait for the hammer to disappear, using the action button, you can actually drop the hammer, and I believe the time limit you have on the hammer resets if you drop it. Uh, one other interesting thing about the hammer, as soon as it's hammer time, uh, if there is a guard on the same level as you are on, they automatically reverse direction. It comes in handy for that uh, more often than it than it does come in handy for actually uh, stunning one of the guards.
0: Yeah, you can actually use that to your advantage to actually lure them into uh, into your path to stun them with the pickaxe.
1: But once again, if you stun them with your pickaxe, you lose the pickaxe for good. It's probably a better uh, better strategy to. Uh, keep the pickaxes on the screen as long as possible so that you can make the guards change direction
0: yeah in the uh playthrough video i watched there wasn't a single time and we're talking about how this person cleared the entire level without losing a life uh the player did not actually use the pickaxe on a guard at all
1: No, nope, he just used it to make him change direction
0: yeah yeah it was uh it was pretty interesting to see that and you know what? I, I'm really questioning that thing about how the pickaxe is only going to last a few seconds because I never saw it disappear. I have had that happen. How long
1: did I'm, it take? I'm certain of it. I don't remember, but it did happen after uh, after a little while.
0: Okay, so that it must be what it is. I'm just so used to like say like you said before, Donkey Kong, where it, it's not very long. It might be that Bagman allows you a lot more time than another game would. So that's probably that's what entirely that was.
1: possible. But yeah, as you were saying, though, you, we, we probably watched the same walkthrough. Oh, I'm sure of it. And Now, first of all, we have both played this game in the arcade. Oh, yes. The walkthrough was just to see if you could beat the damn first level. Yeah. And uh, if it's the same walkthrough, it took the guy 10 minutes to beat the first level.
0: Yeah, it's probably the same one because my the video I watched was something like 940-something, so yeah. <laughs> It was just insane. I kept thinking, and I I looked down. It's like, okay, it must be over by now. No, it's only halfway through, and just one level. It's freaking insane. It looks like there are 17
1: actual gold bags between the three screens, and one blue bag as well, and a lot of them are, like, in dead-end paths. Others, I have, like, one ladder going to it. You have to wait for an elevator. There are two elevators in the game, by the way. And uh, sometimes there's just a, a shaft. Who's the black private dick that's a sex machine to all the chicks? And uh, sometimes you just have no choice. The uh, there are only two guards in this game that actively pursue you, but it seems like they are freaking smart. Oh it's, yeah, it's like oh, and here the thing that sucks most about the game you could be on one of the three screens just doing whatever, trying to get the the bags up to the top, and. None of there and then you're walking toward the edge of the screen and then boom, all of a sudden a guard appears there and you just didn't know he was coming. You don't have any sort of way of telling where in the other two screens the guards are. There's no like radar or anything like that, which while not realistic, if this was a real mine, you would you know, you would see as far as the light you have, and I doubt anything would come up on you that that quickly. It would be one thing if this game if the three screens scrolled, but they don't. Uh, The second you reach the edge of the screen, it transitions to the next screen and so on. I think the game would be a little easier if the screen actually scrolled from left to right, but it doesn't. Oh, yeah.
0: Well, one thing that might help is to keep in mind, this this is something I only recently learned. If you're in another screen, like if you escape off to another screen, the guards will actually move horizontal and only horizontal because at that point they're like, oh, we got to go to that same screen. So you can prepare yourself for that. And if
1: there's a mineshaft between you and them, they will fall down. Yes. There's many ways to, uh, to actually lure them to their death.
0: Well, to their stunnation.
1: Oh, to their stunning. And the uh, we haven't talked about
0: scoring in the game, though, have we? Oh, hell no. Well, why don't we talk about it? Oh, let's. Uh, what kind of scoring is there in this game?
1: Well, I do know one off the top of my head. For every horizontal step you take, you get 10 points. Yeah, even if you backtrack. Even if you backtrack. So, I suppose you could point press to a degree but uh you got to watch out for that bonus timer i don't think it would be worth it on the bonus timer
0: unless there's a spot in which you know you want to stay there for a moment Then hey just go back and forth you know
1: oh and one other interesting thing about the wheelbarrow that we forgot to mention is the wheelbarrow can only stay on the top level of the play area you <gasps> cannot move it to the basement through an elevator or anything why well, you know what's interesting? Yeah, we were talking about this earlier today about uh, there's a, there was a sequel to the game. <laughs> I'm throwing that out there right now, uh, called Super Bagman, which I think we already let the cat out of that bag. <laughs> yeah. And um, the interesting thing about that one, on the first of all, it's it's not three screens across; it's four screens. But on the fourth one, there's a double-wide elevator, and you can move the wheelbarrow all the way to the bottom. Oh, and awesome! This one walkthrough I saw. Had an interesting strategy where they purposely dropped all of the uh, all of the money bags to the very lowest level and then they would just move the the wheelbarrow down to the lower level and you know pop them all in there
0: yeah the thing is if you do that uh like basically dropping a money bag to the lowest level on bagman you're just asking for trouble,
1: yeah, because you have to go back down and get it and you're just wasting time and if you if you have a a guard chasing you. If you drop it from too far of a height, you won't get that bag before he comes. the guard comes out of his stunned state. What, Idaho? Yeah.
0: So what more about the scoring? Well, let me tell you what more about it. You get 100 points if you enter a cart. I do? Yes, you do. If you do, if you Yay. enter a cart, you get 100 but points. But only me, nobody awesome? else. Because you're the only one performing that action. Yay! Yay. And you get 500 points if you stun a guard. If a guard injures himself, well, you don't get any points because you didn't actually perform the action. And we already talked about the bonus counterpoints, double if you deposit a blue bag. But, oh, speaking of scores, speaking of scores, on the default high score table, Mm -hmm. the names that are pre-populated there are Francois, Gastonet, Piaro, Jojo, and... Oh, what's the French word for J? Uh, J-B, J-B, or J B if you're in Eng- if you speak English. Now, the name Pierrot. There's a significance to that name for at least two reasons. Now, first and the most obvious significance of the name Pierrot. Uh, you probably immediately recognize that name as the title character from a short story by Henri Rene Albert Guy de Maupassant. Uh, yeah. Yeah, Pierrot being a dog that's abused by its caretaker, and it's a story that I really don't care to talk about any further than that. The other thing worth mentioning about that name Pierrot, remember episode 38 when we talked about Do, Run Run? Super Pierrot. It's called Super Pierrot in Japan. Hmm. Yes,
1: a French name for a Japanese game.
0: Interesting, isn't that?
1: Well, I'm glad you thought it was.
0: Oh, I thought it was fascinating.
1: So is there any other uh,
0: interesting points that we need to talk about? Well, you know, we like to mention the home ports, which there were a few, although there weren't, I don't know if you'd really necessarily call them ports or clones.
1: If it was under a different name, uh, I would call it a clone. But I think one thing that we should mention first, though, is Bagman actually was on the release list for the Atari 2600, and that would have been the only classic port of this game had it come out. According to atariprotos.com, they reported that the port of Bagman was programmed by Steve Hostetler for Atari. And apparently he was almost finished with the game when Atari laid him off. Uh, He sent all of his materials back to Atari afterwards, and it's unknown what happened to them. So it's very possible an Atari 2600 prototype of Bagman is out there in the wild somewhere. So keep searching them garage sales and them barns. You never know what you're going to find. and mm-hmm. uh, But that's about the only reference to the classic consoles that yeah.
0: uh, that there is for this game. Yeah, there are several clones, though. Now, the thing is, I don't know if there's one that I'm particularly interested in. There is a clone for home computers that was called Gilligan's Gold. Ah, uh, yes. Mm-hmm. Apparently, it was called Gilligan's Gold just because the name Gilligan would be familiar to uh, American folks but uh, ocean software released that clone it was available on the commodore 64 the zx spectrum or zx spectrum if you're not in the united states and the amstrad cpc
1: from what i read uh, about the reports of that is that was actually a programmed by atari soft but then the atari well, closed then atari closed their uh, atari soft branch and that's what i heard
0: Yeah, the way I heard it, I might have heard this wrong, though, is that Ocean Software was eventually acquired by Infogrames, a.k.a. Nowadays. Atari. Atari, yeah. Not the same Atari we grew up with, unfortunately. No, it's Atari in name only. There's also, uh, I've never heard of this one before, the the Memotech MTX. Oh, everybody had one of those back in the Ferg. Well, the thing is, back in the Ferg, I lived in a very remote place where no one ever cared anything about so that's probably why but continental software released a clone for that thing and they called it Goldmine. very
1: continental
0: and there was also another commodore 64 clone made by Ardvark action software and it was called bagot man and that was released in 1983 uh, it was Ooh, also available like a little the-
1: hard french roll
0: yeah yeah and it was also available in the trash 80
1: uh trs 80 one of the few
0: computers i don't have any experience with yeah, I don't th- I don't think I ever had an expe- any kind of experience with that thing, the coco. Unfortunately, I was unable to find any instances of it of uh, Bagman occurring on the Acorn Archimedes or the Tommy Tudor. Or the Tomy Tutor, yeah. What's up with that?
1: I have to say, when we did, we covered I think it was Frogger, yeah, was, and we brought up that there was actually a port of Frogger to the Tommy Tutor computer, and we saw the video of how that played on YouTube. I was really impressed with the quote unquote power that little thing had. Yeah, uh, that looks like it played a mean game of Frogger.
0: Yeah, seriously, the, I mean, it, not that it was bad by any means, but the worst version of Frogger I've ever seen was the Parker Brothers Atari twenty six hundred version, and that was a good version. And that was a good version. Yeah. You
1: can refer back to that episode.
0: Yes, absolutely. So, uh, should we talk about um, records?
1: Yes, actually, we should. I just got done listening to Dark Side of the Moon, and then I was listening to Panic at the Disco after that, but I know I'm not supposed to like them because
0: the internet tells me I'm not supposed to. Now, is that when they were still known as Panic at the Disco? or Actually, they...
1: they got rid of the exclamation mark now. Okay, so They're you just were Panic listening the to, newer,
0: to the newer version where they don't have the bang. Yeah. Okay. But uh, how about Scoring Records? Should we talk about them? Sure, let's do that. Okay, so we'll start with the official home of World Records, Twin Galaxies. Oh, by the way, Twin Galaxies and Orcade.com, they have slightly different settings, at least according to uh, their sites. Twin Galaxies assumes you get an extra life at 30,000 points. If the dip switches are set to that, then Jerry McCloskey has the World Record verified August 2nd, 1983. Oh, by the way, Jimmy G, what was the highest score you ever got on Bagman? Do you know?
1: Well, the highest I ever recorded was just the other day. 36,690. Wow. I think I recovered like seven of the money bags.
0: Yeah, that's better than what I ever did. If you go to arcade.com and look me up, my score is only 18,950. And I think when I was prepping for the episode, I was able to score in the 20s. Jerry McCloskey has us beat a little bit, though. He actually got 6,840,850. How I on
1: don't know. earth? Because this is one of the most insanely difficult games I've ever... It sounds easy. It's insanely difficult. Although, it looks like you can beat it with a pattern. But if you don't
0: have a pattern, this is insanely difficult. And the thing is, like, th- this is a really old record, too. It's from 33 years ago.
1: Yeah, I, I, I think I saw that record, too. He, he said it in 83, I believe.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is before you actually had like video recording to verify it. Basically, you had to go on the word of somebody or you had to perform it at a live event or something. Mm -hmm. So this could be a Fugazi score here, for all we know, especially when you consider how the difficulty ramps up in this game. Do you know how the difficulty ramps up? No, I I don't, actually, because I've never made it past the first round. Well, yeah, neither have I, but I was able to to ascertain a few things. It's roughly every 10,000 points you score, the difficulty increases. So when you have, say, 10,000 points and less, you actually run twice as fast as the guards. You can easily outrun them, even if you're carrying a bag of gold. Once you get past that 10,000 mark and up through about 20,000 points... You're still twice as fast as the guards. You can still outrun them. But if you're carrying a bag, you can just barely outrun a guard. Once you get a little bit higher than that, like, say, between 20,000 and 30,000, the guards are a little bit faster. And instead of being half your speed, they're two-thirds your speed. So basically they increase their speed by 50%. And if you're carrying a bag, then you're actually a little bit slower than the guards. So the guard will catch up with you until you let go of the bag. Let's say you get a score like yours, Jimmy G, somewhere between 30 and 40,000, the Uh guards go even faster. They're now at four-fifths your speed, and if you have a bag, then you're much slower than the guards. After 40,000, though, the guards are just as fast as you are, so if you're being tailed by a guard, the only way you can really get any distance from the guard is either get into an elevator or ride a minecart. Wow. And if you're in that situation where you're being tailed after 40,000 points, if you move down, like you go down a ladder, you will be caught. I don't I would love to see how this how someone could possibly get 6 million in this with all this
1: I I don't know if I'd be interested in that because that's got to take a freaking long time.
0: Oh, it's gotta.
1: It's, it's, it's got, not I mean, like Nibbler Nibbler, you know, it takes a long time, but you get to a billion points on that one. On this game, yeah. you get to 6 million and I, I don't know how
0: long that would take because it takes 10 minutes to clear around. Exactly. Yeah. My thoughts. Exactly. And that's and, if you don't lose a life. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, it's craziness. It, it's just craziness. It's crazy. Oh, and the other thing, something we didn't mention is that, yeah, you slow down when you're carrying a bag, but I don't think you slow down at all. If you're carrying a bag up or down a ladder. Uh,
1: I, I believe you, I don't know. And one other thing we forgot to mention is ac- you can actually grab onto that little hook in the ceiling while you're carrying a money bag i did not know you could do that until i saw this walkthrough and i tried it yeah you can do it
0: yeah you can do it but what happens is it you actually literally drop your money bag at the time and if you let go of the ceiling and you drop down right in the same place you automatically pick up that money bag however if you let go of the ceiling and you end up in a cart you don't take the money bag with you because you'd put it down yeah yeah that's true So that's something else to keep in mind. And going back to the whole thing about since this is a really old score and a really obscenely high score. Now, here's what Orcade.com lists as the world record. And this is assuming extra life at 40,000 points. Dwayne Richard has that record. Does that name ring a bell? That does ring a bell. I'll tell you why. He was the other main person in Man vs. Snake. Ah, you are right. So during Fun Spot 11, May 29, 2009, Dwayne Richards scored 245,680. That's the highest score Arcade.com has listed, which to me sounds a lot more reasonable, a lot more doable. And
1: more realistic, yeah. I, I, I'm not saying that somebody probably couldn't get the 6 million some points and just with the difficulty of this game, unless he's got, had some sort of a pattern, it just doesn't sound realistic to me.
0: And even if you do have a pattern, I mean, it's like what Tim McVeigh was saying about he, he said, like when someone said, yeah, all you got to do is just memorize a pattern. He's like, yeah, you try it.
1: I would imagine for a, a game like uh, Nibbler, that would be a lot easier because the, the things are in a static place you know, all the time. Uh, that yeah. is a game we really should talk about because we oh, are no. referencing it these days. But with this one, you have the mine cars and the, uh, the guards that are constantly moving that can kill you. And so you got to learn how to outsmart them. Nibbler to me seems to be more of an endurance slash reflex type of game, whereas this one you gotta understand the patterns or whatever. It could be that the guards run randomly too. I don't know, but I doubt it. I don't know, but either. You know what we forgot to talk about? Is we forgot to talk about the music in this game.
0: Do your ears hang low? Do they
1: wiggle to and fro? Or, I don't know how the song goes.
0: And apparently, I don't know if this is true or if this is just rumor, but uh, the original title didn't have the word ears in it, but it had another anatomy part that not every gender Do your, has. Do
1: hang low Do they, uh, infer- I know exactly what you're talking about. Yep,
0: yep. Yeah. I mean, eyeballs. Yeah, of course. And uh yeah, apparently it used to it was a silly song people would sing in the military like but for whatever reason um or sometimes known as Turkey in the Straw. The difference is Turkey in the Straw has a chorus that Do Your Ears Hang Low does not have, which is why I'm going to say this is actually Do Your Ears Hang Low because uh-huh. the music in this does not actually have a chorus to it.
1: And I have to say ever since I've been playing this over the last couple of days for this episode Uh,
0: that damn song has been going through my frickin' head. Dude, I got scolded by somebody that I'm married to. I'm not going to name names, but um, this person said, do you have to have the sound on while you're (laughs) playing that thing? Because now I'm never going to be able to get turkey in the damn straw out of my head. It's both addicting
1: and irritating at the same time. Yep. There's also a digitized
0: voice in this game. Yeah, is it digitized or is it synthesized? I couldn't really well, tell. Well, it might be synthesized. It might be Either, synthesized. Whatever, way, whatever they did, it, it it's actually pretty impressive for 1982.
1: And it, it's only, I think, a couple of different things. And I can't can't yeah. tell you what he's saying because I think
0: they are all French. They are French. However, they aren't any words I ever learned in high school French. So I have no idea what it is. It sounds like when he, gets, when he loses a life, he says, ay, 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 ay. which isn't really French at all. That's more Spanish.
1: Like he's just doing a uh, death moan or something. But there's one where he grabs the uh, the, the hook on the ceiling. Oui. It al- almost sounds like he's at a, a Greek restaurant where they light the Saganaki on fire. He's saying, hoppa.
0: Hey. hoppa! Yeah, right, right. And there's something else he says, I think, either when he grabs the, the money, uh, when he grabs a bag of gold or deposits it, he says something else that obviously sounds French. I mean, you can hear a French accent.
1: I'm like- well, I'm sure that Hyde will drop the samples in uh, for this uh, particular broadcast. Broadcast? There- Narrow cast, maybe. Very but, narrow. Um, if any of our listeners are native French speakers, please help us out with this, because I really want to know what he's saying. Or maybe if in, he's the, actually in speaking samples.
0: Indonesian, if maybe people who play with their ding-dongs can get back to us.
1: And there's one other uh, synthesized sound in this game that, quite frankly, is... Sometimes I play this game just to hear this sound. When you walk up or down a ladder. The clack clack clack.
0: I do like that sound. It is pretty That is a is nice pretty, that is a
1: satisfying uh, sound effect. It ranks up there with when you shoot the shields in Zevius. It's just a satisfying sound that uh, every now and then I'll just go up a ladder a little bit just to see if I can hear it. That <laughs> is an awesome sound effect.
0: Now, something I want to propose about Bagman. Propose? Is, yes. Uh-huh. Oh, I'm telling you. I mentioned before how Bagman kind of has a Pac-Man vibe to it, and part of the reason for that is when you actually clear the level, if you are so lucky to do that, you get a little interstitial animation. The animation shows the Bagman walking across the screen being chased by a guard or two. I don't remember if it's one guard, multiple guards, or what. And then when they walk off the screen... Suddenly, they're walking the other way with the Bagman chasing him with the pickaxe. That's very Pac-Man to me.
1: But there are other games that have, like, little between-screen cartoons. Now, I will grant you this one's probably closer to a Pac-Man-ish one than, say, Mr. Do, because the uh, the characters are so small, but I would say that's the only Pac-Man vibe in this game.
0: Other than well, that, it's just... keep listening, Jimmy G. Uh-oh. Because, for one thing, Bagman is a little bit on the mazey side. It looks a little bit like a maze. And also you can kind of temporarily turn the tables on your pursuer.
1: But there are plenty of arcade games that have those same two kind of uh, things going on with them. It doesn't necessarily make this a Pac-Man thing. If this is more Pac-Man-ish, I would uh, expect there to be a maze full of dots or some some sort of uh, variation on that thing, when this is really not that much of a variation. This is, more of, uh, this is more of a platformer. I'd say it has a lot more in common with, say, Donkey Kong than it does Pac-Man. Okay,
0: the, if not Pac-Man, then Clean Sweep on the Vectrex.
1: Which I've never played.
0: Clean Sweep is basically a Pac-Man game. It's a Pac-Man clone with a little extra thing in that you have to deposit what you collect. Kind of like you have to do in Bagman. You have to deposit what you collect. You can't just pick up a bag. You also have to deposit it. So.
1: I want to think that there was a, a Pac-Man clone in the arcade where you had to do that too, but I can't recall what it was off the top of my head.
0: It was probably Clean Sweep on the Vectrex. You probably went to an arcade that had a Vectrex. Well,
1: obviously. I mean, it was hell trying to find the coin slot on the Vectrex, but still.
0: Anyway, do we have anything else we need to say about Bagman? Clack, clack, clack.
1: I think I'm pretty done with Bagman.
0: No, you're not, because you got to tell the people how many continues you want to rate Bagman.
1: It's really tough for me because I play this game off and on, but it is insanely difficult for me. And the fact that, spoiler alert, after you... uh, complete the first round. The second round, uh, the second set of three screens, it's exactly the same layout. There's like no variety. You're just in the same maze over and over, and there's no bonus round to break it up. Now, I've never gotten past the first screen without cheating, but it just... I don't know. It's its like, it, it seems to me it could become repetitive really fast if you were really good at this. But I'd, I'd have to say, though, since I'm not really good at this, and I do come back to it I really like the music and the sound effects in it, and the graphics are good for what they are. Um, Man, I'm having... I'm really having a... You're having a party. I'm having a party. Uh, I'm having a tough time on this one. You you know, I think I'm going to rate it a 3, even though I do come back to it, and it's not a bad game. I think it's insane level of difficulty and the potential for becoming repetitive is kind of what does it for me.
0: Yeah, I'm also going to rate it a 3 but simply because well, it actually is a unique concept. It really is. There's no other game like it when you think about it. The only
1: game I I ever
0: except Pac-Man. Have, no. The, the, <laughs> the only game I've
1: ever played that is uh, is close to it is uh, it's Load Runner in a way, like the old the old 8-bit uh, computer game. I can almost see that. Especially since Load Runner, you do have pipes that you have to hold onto, and you're collecting stuff. You just don't have a wheelbarrow; you have to drop them into. It, it's got a Load Runner vibe to it, but I don't remember if Load Runner came out before or after this, or maybe around the same time. So that's kind of what I compare it to. Load Runner was also insanely difficult, too, by the way.
0: Oh yeah, yeah. But thing about Bagman, I mean, it is a unique concept. I got excited when I found out Galloping Ghost had it. Uh huh. Because I hadn't played it in a while. And then I remembered why I hadn't played it in a while. Because, well, it's a good concept. It's very creative. The sounds are good. The graphics are good for 1982. But the thing is, it's because it is so darn hard. It is so difficult that I get turned off by it too easily. Mm -hmm. Even when we were prepping for this episode, I couldn't stand to play it very much. I would play this, and I'd get fed up with it, and I'd play Timber or Mr. Do. By the way, where was the first place you ever played this? Oh, jeez. I'm not 100% sure. I would say it would have to be, by default, Aladdin's Castle at Lincoln Mall. Theoretically, it could have been Showbiz Pizza Place in uh, Westmont, Illinois. It could have been Stargaze Arcade in Bourbon, Illinois, the, the one time I was ever allowed to go there. So I don't know. I'm willing to bet all the money that we both wish we had that it was at Aladdin's Castle.
1: Actually, mine was at Aladdin's Castle, Louis Joliet Mall. Ah. And interestingly enough, they had it there for quite a long time, and then suddenly uh, Super Bagman was in its place. And uh, I want to think that Super Bagman was only available as a conversion kit for Bagman, but that's something that I have been looking into, but I haven't found a definitive answer on that yet. But we will talk about Super Bagman at some point down the line, because I have played that one also. And uh, that one's got a few more twists, one of which we've already divulged about being able to take the wheelbarrow to the bottom of the mine. But uh, we'll we'll talk about that at a future date. Yeah. I'm pretty sure.
0: Oh, by the way, it's also worth mentioning that Bagman has a unique marquee. Yeah, oh, we did not mention that. No, 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 no. do tell. It's basically a little comic strip. It's the Bagman wearing a black and white stripes. Well, actually, a black and gray striped suit. He doesn't look like the Bagman in the game itself at all. No, it doesn't. And and what's really cool is if you just look at the marquee and the monologue, as it were, because there's only one person talking, it's not really a dialogue, it actually shows you how to play the game. It does. The first cell, he's using a hacksaw to take the ball and chain off his, uh, off his foot. And he says, as soon as I get rid of this, I'll get the gold dice stashed. So there we go. We already have the setup for the game. Again, I feel like Bill in the Atari Bytes podcast right now.
1: Because
0: <laughs> th- there's our setup right there. We know that the bags of gold are stashed by... The,
1: and it explains all of the actions yeah. you can do. And, exactly. And it's I have to give the game credit for that, because that is a really great way to introduce the game to people and to make some of the concepts involved in it less uh, esoteric, as it were, I guess.
0: Now, here's something I wasn't able to find out, is who came up with that? Was that Stern or was that uh, Valadon? Because what's interesting is over to the left of the marquee, it says Stern Seberg with the registered trademark on it. And the very last cell inside the cell itself, it says Stern Electronics Copyright 1983. So I'm wondering if they only had that strip in America.
1: I don't know. That's a good question. Mm. But that was a really, that I it, it made the, the marquee look cluttered, yes, but it did an excellent job of explaining the game, and it's one of the things that this game is known for to this day. Yeah.
0: It actually looks like a newspaper comic strip with the white background does. and everything. It does, so like, it's, the, it's pretty like cool. the Sunday Funnies type. I want to know what that Seaberg is, I never thought to look that up. Uh, well, maybe you should do just that. Seaburg apparently is a jukebox manufacturer. Stern did make jukeboxes, so. so, Oh, that's right. The interesting
1: thing about Stern is they're one of the few game companies from the classic era that are still around to this day in in an almost similar form. They just don't make video games anymore. They just do pinball like they originally did.
0: Oh, you know what? It looks like sometime around 1979 or 1980, Stern actually bought out Seaberg. Okay. So that might explain that there. I think that pretty much... Co- I can't believe we had so much to say about freaking Bagman. It didn't. It just doesn't really seem like there'd be much to it, but there really is. Well,
1: there is, I mean, it, it looks like a simple game, but there's a lot more to it. And as I said, that uh, little comic strip thing on the marquee really breaks it down.
0: Break it down! Break it down! So, shall we um, stop talking about Bagman and start talking about um, our other game for tonight? Sure, let us do that. Ah, so uh, why don't you tell us about it?
1: Yes, uh, we're going to be talking about Opistar. I, I, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Sinistar.
0: Ah, Sinistar. Huh. Run, coward. You know what? We did get some uh, pre-feedback from our friend Chris Federico. Oh, we did? Yes. He said, Hiya, as you probably know, Sinistar was largely the creation of RJ McCall, McCall Michael, Mescal, whatever. Who went on to play a major role in devising the mighty Amiga? Yay! When you guys announced that Sinistar would be an eminent pie factory filling, I see what he did there. I thought there's a great interview with R. J. Mickle, Michael Mickle, Mickle, Mescal, whatever. Now everyone at home, Mecha hi Mecha, Heiniho. On Midway Arcade Treasures. I wonder if the guys have ever heard of it. Well, it was a thought, so it probably wasn't that lucid, but it had the gist. I have the PS2 version of that great emulation collection whose title is explained, I suppose, by the fact that Midway bought the rights to a lot of Williams games and Atari games and etc., I found the interview on YouTube, and he gives us a link to it. I just thought it might help a bit with your research in the admittedly unlikely case that you haven't already heard it. As it turns out, the swine in suits made Mikal, Michael, 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 Macro, Michael, 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 and company increase the game's difficulty, and that's why it's so damn hard. So, thank you. Uh, thank you, Chris. We'll uh, share that YouTube link in our show notes.
1: Indeed. Let's see. Ah, Sinistar. Ah, Sinistar. The object of the game, Sinistar, is you got this ship, and I don't remember where in space you are, but uh, you got to destroy the Sinistar. And how do you do that? Well, you got to mine crystals. And how do you do that? You keep shooting planetoids, and then you pick up the crystals. But you got a few things in your way.
0: What is the Sinistar?
1: What is the Sinistar? Well, first of all, we'll break it down. We'll break it down. First of all, let's talk about the minor enemies first. First, Well, actually, I will talk about the Sinistar a little bit. The Sinistar is a gigantic space station thing that has a devil-like face on it. And it taunts you with different phrases, which we'll get to in a little bit. Now, the Sinistar just doesn't appear. He has to be created. And how how does he get created? Well, first of all, there's two different other enemies in the game. There are workers and there are warriors. Worker ships, they're little red, little alien-looking things... They mine and collect Sinusite crystals and build the Sinistar. And how they do that is by constantly bumping into a planetoid, they will release the Sinusite crystals. And Warriors, they help the workers mine the Sinusite crystals by shooting the planetoids. Then they also shoot you and they will also defend the Sinistar. Actually, the workers can defend the Sinistar too in a moment, and I'll tell you how that happens. And then there's the Sinistar itself. First of all, it is built by the workers. Every time they pick up a crystal, they go to a predetermined place on the screen. And, well, first of all, this, the play area is is several, what they say, parsecs across. You have a radar scanner at the top of the screen. Uh, there are several different blips on there. You can tell what, uh, what is where just by the color of the blips. Uh, I believe the gray ones are the warriors. The, the warriors are gray-looking ships. Would they have their octagonal shape. And they have a turret in the middle, and they fire at incredible rates. And the workers show up as red blips. And actually, I think the warriors are blue blips, and the planetoids are gray blips. And I believe the Sinistar is a gigantic yellow blip. And I think you are a yellow blip also, but it's easy to distinguish between you and the Sinistar because you stay in the middle of the radar.
0: I don't know. People mistake me for the Sinistar all the time.
1: Well, I can see that because you get built by worker aliens. So, you know. Now, the Cinestar, as I said, built by workers, uh, they need 18 crystals to build it. Every time you shoot a planetoid, it takes a bunch of shots before it'll release a little crystal. And the crystals can be picked up by you or the workers. If you pick up a crystal, it turns into a Cinnabomb. No, not Cinnabon, the place of the tasty yet overly sweet cinnamon rolls, but a Cinnabomb. and The workers pick them up, and they use that to assemble the Cinnastar. It takes 18 crystals to assemble the Cinnastar. However, it only takes 13 Cinnabombs. I'm going to keep confusing Cinnabomb with Cinnabon now that I mentioned that. <laughs> it takes 13 Cinnabombs to destroy the Cinnastar. What happens is it takes, there's like 12 around the outside and then 6 in the, wait, is 12 or 14? I think it's 14 around, no, it's 12 around the outside, 4 in the middle. No, that would be only 16, that would be 6, I don't remember. Just take my word for it, 18 crystals to build, 13 to destroy, because one for the face. So there, oh yeah, it would be 12 around the outside and then 6 in the middle though, to complete the face. So there you go. Anyway, 13 Cinnabombs to destroy it. The control panel has a joystick, and it also has a fire button, and it has a Cinnabomb button. Now, the interesting thing, first of all, the uh, the joystick, I believe, is like a 64-way joystick. 64 directions, if you can believe that. You have absolute freedom of movement in this game. Uh, The game itself plays a lot like Time Pilot to the uninitiated. We've talked about Time Pilot in the past, so if you can play Time Pilot you'll have an idea how to control the game, but not much more. Uh, Because at that point, you also have to be cognizant of the warrior ships shooting at you, and then, of course, there's the Sinistar. If the Sinistar gets a hold of you, if you touch a Sinistar, you spin, and then the the Sinistar takes a big old bite out of you, exploding your ship. Uh, You can tell when the uh, Sinistar is ready, it's been finished building because it will have a sound effect, a voice that will announce... Beware, I live. And we'll get some more to the speech in a moment here. Oh, I know the theme. The theme is
0: games with speech.
1: Yay! Good night, everybody. Good night, everybody. One interesting thing about the game, if you go into the service mode where you can set all the options for, like, free lives and that sort of thing, it actually does have an option to have rapid fire turned on or off. So you could either have a machine where you have to keep tap-tap-tap-tap-tap-tap-tap-tap to fire, or just hold it down to fire. And most of them, I think by default, are set to fire. So, you got that going for you. Now, let's say you picked up 18 crystals, and they were turned into Cinnabombs. Any more you pick up after that, I believe it adds it to the engine's energy, but that means nothing. It just means that you basically just wasted a crystal. The crystals behave in, not just the crystals, everything behaves in interesting manner. The only two things in the game that can kill you are the shots from the warriors and the Sinistar itself. You bounce off of everything else. You bounce off the warriors, you bounce off the uh, the workers, you bounce off the planetoids. You can pick up the crystals. They don't bounce off of you, but they behave in a similar manner. They bounce off of everything. And it's really interesting because sometimes you could be trying to pick up a crystal and then a warrior or some other item, maybe a planetoid, will come running into it at full speed, and then just about before you're ready to pick it up, it hits it, and it just zooms right off the screen. It's like, there's a lot of physics going on in this game uh, that you have to be aware of. Because you could be sitting there mining a planetoid, and then a warrior or a... uh, or the Sinistar, or a worker, will run into another planetoid and knock you and the other planetoid way out into space. you really got to play it a while to be familiar with the physics, but it's, it's, this is a very physics-heavy game. I just saw what I did there. That's the game in a nutshell. It's, it's actually kind of simple in a way, but that's where it really ends being a simple game. Let's go into scoring a little bit here. Now, every time you shoot and destroy a worker, you get 150 points. Every time you destroy a warrior, you get 500 points.
0: Warriors, come out to
1: play! The Sinistar, every section of the Sinistar that you destroy, you get 500 points. If you completely destroy the Sinistar, which is the object to move to the next round, you get 15,000 points. Keep that in mind, kiddies. Uh, if you destroy a planetoid, which you can, it just takes a lot of shots, some planetoids more than others, you'll get a lousy five points. And for every Cinesite crystal that you pick up, whether you it gets turned into a Cinnabomb or not, uh, you get 200 points. So you got that going for you. Now, Cinestar is famous for its speech. These are actual samples in the game. They're not synthesized. And the, uh, the phrases are... Beware, I live. I hunger. I hunger, coward. Beware, coward. Run, run, run. I am sinister. And run, coward. Interesting, these voices were recorded by radio personality John Doremus. He was an American radio personality. He was known for radio syndication of a show called The Passing Parade, which was a series of short stories of uh, relatively unknown episodes throughout history. This is interesting. In 1964, his company pioneered the idea of in-flight music for airlines. And he, in the 1960s, produced Patterns in Music for WMAQ Radio in Chicago. John passed away at the age of 63 in 1995 in good old Naperville, Illinois. So it was an actual radio DJ that provided the voice, if you can believe that. And uh, we said uh, Opie Star at the beginning of this episode. uh, In-house at Williams. Sinistar was jokingly referred to as Star because Run-Coward sounded a lot like Ron Howard. So, I could see where they would say that. But um, there are some bugs and cheats in this game, by the way.
0: Did ah, you know yes, this? Do tell, do tell, yes. Do
1: tell. Well, first of all, there's a, a famous 255 life bug. Now, first of all, every time you get killed by the Sinistar, you touch the Sinistar, and then your ship spins, and then... The Sinistar bites your ship, and your ship explodes. Now, what happens is when the the spinning animation starts, all of the warriors stop firing at you. And the reason is because they didn't want to cause any sort of a glitch in the game. What they didn't think of, though, was what to do about shots that were already on the screen at that time. What happens at that point, let's say that you start the spinning animation. You're going into the Sinistar. Your ship is spinning. There's nothing you can do about it but you get hit at the same time by a shot that was already on the screen. The shot hits you first, and it makes your life count go to zero. But it has to finish the animation, and the Sinistar has to chomp you. So by the time that you hit the Sinistar chomps you, then you lose another life, setting the counter to negative zero. And on an 8-bit computer, negative zero is the same as 256,
0: Ergo... Oh, negative one, actually.
1: Well, I'm sorry, negative one. Ergo, you now have 255 lives. I've never seen anybody do it. I haven't even watched the YouTube...
0: No, I have seen the YouTube video of it. Specifically, it's because it was the number is specified as an unsigned integer, which means if it hits negative, it rolls back into the
1: extreme positive. Exactly. So you end up with 255 lives. And there are a couple of hidden credits screens in the game. You can get the information about whoever created it. Several steps required. Uh, You have to do this on the last life of your game. The easiest way to do it is if you have access to the internals of the machine. You set the number of lives you have to one. But otherwise, you can do it with just a regular game. It's just going to take a little while. First of all, insert a credit, and then you bump into a rock. Then you push the fire button seven times. And then don't fire anything and avoid planetoids and workers and get shot by a warrior. Now, your game is going to be over at this point. Enter your initials, then press the two-player button three times, then insert a coin and start a new one-player game. Now, you don't move or fire, just push the Cinnabomb button once. Now, at that point, if you insert three coins and press Cinnabomb again, there's going to be a crossword credit screen, like the credits, the names of the people will be in a crossword format, will be displayed. To get just a message from Williams Electronics, Instead of doing the three coin thing, just end the game by getting shot without hitting a planetoid or firing, and then push the one player button to display the message. And that is how you get those particular messages. Uh, one thing I did uh, forget to mention is after the Cinnastar is built and you shoot a Cinnabomb, the workers and the warriors will purposely try to run into your Cinnabombs to intercept them. And in fact, if it happens off screen, there's a little message area at the top left of the screen. It'll, it'll give you status updates. And you see a message up there that says "Cinebomb intercepted by worker or warrior or something like that. So you want to collect as many Cinnabombs as you possibly can. And even while the Cinestar is chasing you, you're going to still want to try to collect as many Cinnocyte crystals as you can. Now, moving on to ports, there were no released ports of this game uh, on the classic systems. However, there were prototype ROMs found for the Atari 2600 and Atari 8-bit computer systems. And the interesting thing there is, there's a, looks like a complete Atari 2600 ROM for this game, and the 8-bit computer version looked like it only needed some uh, tweaking of the AI. Both of them were really, really well done. The Atari 2600 one was, you thought the arcade game was hard.
0: The 2600 version is insanely hard. It's harder than the arcade version? It's
1: harder than the arcade version, because in the arcade, when you hit the Cinnabomb button, it automatically homes in on the Sinistar. In the Atari 2600 version, your ship has to be facing the Sinistar for the uh, the Cinnabomb to hit the Sinistar. Don't know if that was something they were going to fix later. Now, the Atari 8-bit computer version was ported to the Atari 5200, and I believe you can purchase that at AtariAge.com. Interesting to note that the Atari 8-bit computer version also has the voice. Every time the voice plays, the action on the screen, and boys, there's a lot of action in this game, uh, comes to a screeching halt to play the sample. Oh, kind of like Berserk. Like Berserk. And the Atari 8-bit version does not use the same samples as the arcade version. In fact, Atari manager Steve Kalfi supplied the voice for the 8-bit version of Sinistar. And uh, he was like the uh, the boss <laughs> at Atari. And uh, yeah, they thought it was interesting to have the evil boss man record the, the voices of the evil boss villain in the game. And uh I believe that's about all I have to say about Sinistar at this point. Um absolutely stunning graphics. This game has some amazing really well-done graphics. The Sinistar well, itself it's is quite uh beautiful and it's uh, it's got your typical Williams uh shoot em up explosions in this. In other words they're 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 quite beautiful in and of, in and of themselves. And uh The thing with this game, there's no time to breathe. Oh, one thing I did forget to mention, there are different kinds of zones in each game. Uh, There's a worker zone, where there are more workers than anything else in there. A warrior zone, where there are more warrior ships. A planetoid zone, obviously, there are more planetoids than other things in the screen. And a bleak zone, which has very, very, very few planetoids. And uh, if you get that one, uh, you need to really watch out. Watch your Cinnabomb level. Uh, and one other thing I forgot to mention. Any Cinnabombs that you have left over from a level, you do carry them on to the next level. So you've got a bit of a head start. But don't waste your time when you get to the next round because they build the Cinnastar faster. And in the first round, if you shoot a piece of the Cinnastar successfully, the workers just ignore it. They, they All they will do is protect the Cinnastar. Now, starting in the second round, they will mine crystals again and try to rebuild it. And uh, if you think this game is hard enough when you first play it, uh, you haven't seen anything yet when they start rebuilding the Sinistar. So, um, yeah, there you go. Uh, Sinistar, this is one of the most insanely difficult games ever released in the arcade. Not a very complex game uh, play-wise, other than you really kind of need to... You can't really play it like... Uh, I, I made allusion to Time Pilot. You can't play it like that because of the mining and the and the Sinistar character. In fact, I get a bit of a, a smile when I see people playing this at Galloping Ghost, because, or especially younger kids, they just play it like Time Pilot. And there's been a few times I explained to them how to play the game, and they're like, oh, I didn't know that. And the problem is, unlike Bagman, which had the comic strip panel, which explained the workings of this game, this has just got like three, maybe four sentences that
0: explain how the game works. Which is pretty typical, actually, of any game back th- back in those days, you know.
1: Indeed it is. I guess you could also watch the attract mode, but the first time I ever played this game, which I'll spoil right now, was uh, was the arcade at Marriott's Great America. The problem is I just played it, I thought the bombs were smart bombs, just destroy everything on the green, and I'm just playing, 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 playing. I you was know, just thinking you had to kill a certain number of of bad guys, you know, just like Time Pilot, and then suddenly this big devil-looking thing comes out, you know, shouting expletives at me or whatever it is, and they're like, well, how the heck do you kill that thing? This is one game you've really got, or even though there's only three or four lines of instructions, you've really got to read the instructions on the machine before you even play this game, because... Well, I was going to say you won't even get past the first uh, the first round, but even if you do know how to play this game, the chance of you getting past the first round is pretty slim. Indeed.
0: So, what have ye to add? Did we mention, like, the people actually involved in it besides R.J. Michael, Michael, Mescaline, whatever? No, we did not. Yeah, well, the other people in the the well, the designers include Noah Falstein and John Newcomer. Also, Python Angela was involved with this, although so I wasn't able to pinpoint exactly what he was doing in there. I'm guessing he designed the artwork, since I believe he also designed the uh, the Joust artwork as well. And we should mention, hey, it came out in February
1: 1983. Oh, there you go. One thing I did neglect to mention is there was actually a three-dimensionalized home version of this game for the PC called Sinistar Unleashed in, I believe, 1999. And I've got a copy of it here, and I, pl- I was able to play it on my old 32-bit computers, but been having a devil of a time trying to run it on my 64-bit computers.
0: I might have to pop out DOSBox or something to run it. But uh, since we're talking about that, it's worth mentioning also that the Amiga had a uh, shareware version of it called, well, it's a crippleware version of it actually called Xenostar or Xenostar. Uh, I'm going to use the King Henry VIII pronunciation and say it's Xenostar. That
1: probably is correct.
0: And it, it's basically the exact same game, except that it allowed you to choose a, a control scheme. There's the standard Sinistar control scheme where you move up to move up, left to move left, etc. Or you could use asteroid style controls where you rotate and thrust, which is what threw me off about Sinistar when I first played, is that you got to get out of the mindset of asteroids. You really do.
1: Yeah, because the planetoids do not act like the asteroids and asteroids at all they no. they take a lot of shots and they just blow up and they they do explode into like smaller portions, but that's it once those go off the screen, they don't ever come back
0: but what I hated what I hated though when xenostar was out, I was in college, and then you know I didn't have money well you not that I'm filthy rich right now, but I especially didn't have money when I was in college, and the way xenostar was released is basically it was released as a demo, and if you wanted the full game, you had to pay nineteen bucks or whatever. And the way the demo was is that you could not destroy Xenostar. You could uh-huh. not get Xenobombs. What, what would happen is once Xenostar was created, he'd be beware. I live, and he would immediately kill you. Immediately. Oh wow! There's no like escaping. No, uh, no breathing room or anything. No breathing room. So it's like, man, I want to be able to play. Why don't? Why can't you just at least let someone play? Like, pro, like. If you're going to do a demo, put out a dumbed-down version of it that'll let you play the full level so you know what the whole thing feels like. At
1: least, at the very least, give you a couple of bombs so you can see how those well, react. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But, man... I, was... can, I can understand not being able to destroy it as long as you can see what it does a little.
0: Yeah. How, well, how did that play? Was it just as difficult as the arcade? Well, again, I don't know, because the demo would, wouldn't allow you to survive. But, I mean other than the Sinistar or the whatever they called it. I mean, I'm imagining it. I I seem to remember it was. And while I'm talking about that, I might as well talk about where I first played Sinistar. Believe it or not, I first played Sinistar at Underground Retrocade. I always, always, always knew about Sinistar ever since it came out, especially because it is the cover story on the September 1983 edition of Joystick. The only
1: issue of that game I ever owned.
0: I think I believe I got it for Christmas. Yeah, me too, until... until, earlier this year when I got a bunch from uh, Jeff Prescott. Thank you, Jeff. But, but I always knew about it. I saw it on Starcade. I definitely saw it at Aladdin's Castle. I just never actually sacrificed a token for it because I was kind of afraid to.
1: And a couple of other things about the game. Uh, first of all, uh, when it was in development, it was first called Juggernaut and then Darkstar. Then they eventually came to Sinistar for some reason. And it was also released in a standard upright. It was in one of the classic Williams DuraMold cabinets, which was a plastic molded prefab cabinet, which there's rumors going around that after time, the cabinet would shrink and it would eject the monitor. Although from what research I've been able to ascertain, there's never actually been any recorded incidences of it happening. And uh, there's also a really cool cockpit model, which is what Galloping Ghost has, and which is the model that I played at uh, Marriott's Great America low those years ago. Uh, or back in the Ferg, as we like to say. Hi, Ferg! And um, hey, it's really cool because it's, I mean, it's a typical cockpit, but it's got a couple of uh, silver guns on either side on the top of it, which is kind of cool. And it kind of like slopes down. Uh, apparently if uh, my information is correct, the cockpit model is only one player, which uh, even the most, it co- makes a, lot sense. Of, uh, a lot of cockpit games actually still do two player. They just give you a little extra time to swap, you know, people out. But uh, this one is just a one player in the cockpit variety from what I see. And, um, I believe that's all the information I have and uh, all of my experiences with it up uh, this is another graphically impressive game from Williams. Uh, oh, yeah. Most Williams games are, let's let's just face it, most Williams games of that era were pretty graphically and sonically impressive. They had great graphics and awesome sound. Sinistar was no, uh, no different, and like all Williams games of that era, Sinistar was insanely difficult, but this is probably the most difficult of all the Williams games from that era. That's even including Robotron, Joust, Defender, even Defender, and even Stargate with its uh, with all the dang buttons and joysticks on that thing. I, don't, I even, find Defender to be harder, to be honest with you. Really? With, yeah. From the well, you know what? Yeah, I guess I could see that. But this one gets the uh, gets the uh, probably is more well re- remembered as a difficult game because oh yeah, yeah. Uh, with Defender, if you replace the the thrust the up and down joystick and the reverse buttons with the joystick i think that would be a much much easier game
0: yeah absolutely
1: i think Defender is more difficult mainly just because of the controls whereas sinistar it's difficult just because the game's difficult
0: well i'll put it to you this way defender maybe it's not difficulty that's the first thing you remember the first thing you remember is the gameplay sinistar though the first thing you're going to remember is how damn hard it is oh easily i mean I play Cinder i I played it
1: since the '80s, off and on, whenever I would see it. It wasn't—I don't recall it being in any of the arcades around near where I lived. Although I do know I've seen it a few places, uh, but I don't think there were any arcades. It was in any arcades in Joliet that I remember. I do know I played it at Great America. I've played it at Galloping Ghost. I'm pretty sure I may have played it at that, or the Aladdin's Castle at the Lincoln Mall. May not have. I don't know. But uh, only in the last year or so. Have I even destroyed the, the first Sinistar? Hmm. I Just in the last year or so, and I did it again just the other night. And as long as we're there, let's talk about scoring, shall we? Oh, sure. um, yeah, let's. I, I don't have any of the world record scores. Oh, shucky darn. I do have my score from the other night, which is oh, really? 71,835. 71,
0: oh, man, yeah, I my, my record on this is 61,080. I actually did destroy Sinistar C- uh, on the arcade version. I think I came close to doing that twice, actually.
1: This is interesting because the other night when I first sat down to play this, I destroyed two Sinistars, and I'm like, two wow. of them? And my score was 119,810? Uh, that looks like a 10. And I'm like, this can't be right. And then I looked into the... Um, into the game settings. And yeah, I had it set way easy. <laughs> ah. But I reset everything back to manufacturer default. And uh, yeah, my score uh, 71,000,
0: whatever I said it was. Yeah, manufacturer default would be three ships and uh, extra ship every 30,000, difficulty level five and continuous fire enabled. Huh,
1: this one, uh, the default went to five.
0: Yeah. You said three. Oh, default. Oh, f- five ships. Five ships. Ah. Hmm. Yeah, because Twin Galaxy says the factory defaults are three ships. but
1: Unless it could be the ROM I was playing, but I was playing the most common ROM, which was Revision 2. Hmm. Which I believe is, that's
0: the one that fixes those bugs you were talking about, I believe. I don't know. That's a good question. Because I seem to remember that the bug fixes were kind of rush-released before an arcade show happened once. And so some some machines might have the bug fix. But
1: a source here says revision two was the most common version of the game. Oh, and this is interesting because like Defender Robotron Joust all them had like the orange version and whatever. They were by color. This one is actually version numbers. This one this game doesn't actually use colors.
0: Well, the color ones might be something specific to say Eugene Jarvis.
1: Oh, that's true. uh but then again, he wasn't involved was that a- he wasn't involved in Joust and Joust was a color, I believe, revision. Huh. Could be a different uh manager at Williams or something like that. It could be. So you mentioned earlier that uh, they actually made the game harder after it premiered at the AMOA show, which is the, oh gosh, what does it stand for? Amusement?
0: Amusement Machine Operators Operators of America America or something?
1: Something like that, yes. It was, uh, the game was actually easier at the trade show, and then the the suits at Williams said, make it harder. And boy, did they make it harder. The fact of the matter is, you're going to be killed by the Warriors more than anything else in this game. Uh, you'll get killed by the Sinistar, yes, but uh, those warriors, they shoot at you almost way too fast. Sometimes I think it's almost uh, almost unfair how fast they can yeah. you know, rip shots off at you and how their bullets can just stay on the screen. But well, I guess uh, the
0: best way to explain it is by saying something annoying like this. This Williams game is so easy, said no one ever. There you go. But that having been said... First of all, do you have the the world
1: records for this game?
0: (laughs) What do you think I am, a world record haver of games? Well, yeah, actually, I do. As of right now, Twin Galaxies says that Chris Emery has the world record and has had it since April 3rd, 1984, with a score of 761,305. Okay. Um, Orcade.com says that Steve Wagner has it, and that was performed at Richie Knuckles during the Battle of the Arcades on March 24th, 2012, with a score of 368,525.
1: And unlike Bagman, those seem like legitimate scores you could reach in this game.
0: (laughs) Yeah, if you're really, really,
1: really, really, really good. Because that that 300 and some thousand one, the score I got is like uh, almost a third of that. Yeah. A little less than a third of it, but those do sound like legitimate scores. If you are good, but
0: oh yeah, uh, yeah,
1: just getting around those dang uh, warrior ships. It it was interesting because way back in the Ferg, I actually had the Williams Arca- Arcade Classics pack or whatever it was for uh, DOS PC, and um, it allowed you to go into the settings and you could change. You had a lot of freedom with these uh, with some of these Williams games as far as difficulty and what score you can get more ships on. And to play it for a while, I uh, I put the uh, the difficulty level at the easiest and to where you get a free life like every thousand points. So two warriors and boom, you got a new ship. Two warriors, boom, another ship. And <laughs> I think I was playing that for hours and hours and hours before I finally got tired because I just had so many free freaking ships. There's no way you'd want to do that uh, no, no, no. because the game, the more ships you get, obviously the easier, but, uh, but you do have a lot of freedom with, uh, with your settings on these Williams games, especially like Joust, Robotron, this one couldn't tell you on bubbles, but I'm pretty sure that one did too. Um, they didn't have like set dip switch, like you could get free life at 30,000 and 60,000 points or one free life at 50,000 points and no other free lives in the game. You actually had freedom to set these things to tailor the game to your audience. But, uh, you know, let's not go overboard. Or underboard, as it were. So you can make the game as easy as you want or as difficult as you want. And with that having been said, I'm almost tempted to pump the difficulty of Sinistar up to its absolute maximum with no free (laughs) lives. Kind of like the challenge mode of Robotron on the Atari 7800.
0: Yeah, get back to us at how well that turns out, will ya? I might do that. I said might.
1: (laughs) And I believe that's all I have to say about Sinistar.
0: I ain't got nothing more about Sinistar. Um, other than it's hard as all hell but still i i really enjoy it uh how would you uh rate it on a scale of one to five continues whoa
1: that was rather abrupt i like this game it's it's hard as hell but it's 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 addicting as hell too and i think it has to do with the addition of the mining of the crystals that adds another dimension to the game which keeps it from being just a mindless shoot 'em up like uh time pilot uh Time pilot, great game, but there's not a whole lot of depth there. Not as, because you're, you're, you're basically just shooting stuff. I mean, I guess it has some depth because it's basically telling a story of a, of a ship, you know, of, a, of an airplane that got caught between time wars or whatever. But this one feels like there's a lot more depth to it, as I said, because of the mining of the crystals. And you got to give it credit for that. It's just that I think the difficulty keeps this from being a five continue game. But then again, I would say it barely keeps it from that. It's, I, I, I'm really I, 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 I'm torn on this one. I want to rate it a 5, but I want to rate it a 4 also at the same time. Wow, because I really do like this game a lot. You know, I th- I'm going to go with a 5. I'm going to go with a 5 on this game. Insanely difficult, and the reason I'm giving it a 5 is because I just absolutely love the sit-down cabinet of this game. Um, uh-huh. It's it. I just love these environmental cabinets where you can basically just get in there. It's like going into your own... Uh, you remember the photo booths that used to be in uh, oh, yeah. arcades and in malls? and sh- They still got them, actually.
0: Oh, yeah, they're still there.
1: They're still there. And uh, it's it's like sitting down in one of those. You have a sense of privacy. You have isolation while you're playing it. And I think that adds a lot to this game. So, you know, I'm going to rate it a five because I just think it's a hard game. But it's I think it's one... Like all good games, it's got that. Oh come on! I got to try this again. I got to do this again,
0: but that's once you know how to play it. That's exactly why I'm rating it a five too. I'm not rating it a five because oh, everybody knows you have to rate a five. No, I don't care what everybody knows. Just for all the right reasons, all the reasons you said it is a has very very interesting layers to it you, again you have the mining going on in addition to the shooting all the uh, shooting your enemies and all that good stuff the digitized sound adds to it with a known radio personality too come on
1: and on top of it the whole beware i live and run coward those all became memes basically before memes existed exactly you might not think about it, but Sinistar is almost as iconic a game as, say, Pac-Man or Space Invaders, but for different reasons.
0: For different reasons, although I wouldn't go so far as to say as iconic as Pac-Man. Well, or Space maybe not Invaders. as iconic, but it is an iconic game. And if you go up to anybody and who knows, who remembers classic arcade games, and you say, "Hey, what are the best ones?" Chances are, someone who did a lot of game playing in the early '80s is going to come up and say, "Oh, you know what I like to play all, all the time? Sinistar." It was hard as hell, but man, that was a great game.
1: I think it goes actually uh I, I I would say a little bit differently on that. I think more people say if you ask them what is Sinistar, they'll say, "Oh, I don't know." But if you say Run Coward, they'll know that. They I think they'll know of Sinistar without knowing that it is Sinistar that you're talking about. You know how like right. a, a, like you like some uh some movies or some songs, you'll remember like a lyric or something. And then when you find out who sang it or who starred in that movie you're like, "Oh, that's who it was." Like to this day, I mean, the day I, f- I realized that was Samuel L. Jackson playing a scientist in Jurassic Park was like a, just like a big revelation to me. It's just like I think some people once they find out that Run Coward came from Sinistar, they're like, "Oh yeah, that's where I know that from or something like that." It's an iconic game. It's yes, not the iconic, yes. it's not as iconic as Pac-Man or Space Invaders, but it is iconic.
0: Yeah, this is getting a five from the both of us. Now, we talked about both of our games now, so uh, why don't you tell our listeners what the theme is of today's episode?
1: Why, I certainly will. The theme of this game are two arcade games that are insanely the theme difficult. Are? Theme are? The theme of the show is two games That's that, are, better. that are, and I thought I was the grammar Nazi, that are oh, insanely difficult. These are two of the most difficult games that you will play in the arcade. Bagman, I think, can be beat with a pattern. I don't know that for a fact. But they are insanely difficult. And that's why we love Sinistar.
0: <laughs> I can only think of one game off the top of my head that's harder than both of these. Oh? But, uh, yeah. And I don't want to talk about it right now because I'll just get really, really angry. Hmm. Okay, fine. Lunar Lander. Lunar Lander is so bad impossible that it just plain sucks it sucks 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 i've actually lunar been Landers able to sucks. land
1: the ship in that game not often but i've done
0: it i'll tell you what i've i've it was easier for me to beat the sinistar than it was to land a freaking lunar lander anyway yeah, yeah, yeah I'll so give you that. that's the that's the theme games that are pretty darn hard so for next episode uh we will be talking about Stratavox. And Space Invaders, which was a gaping hole in all the episodes we've done so far. It's one of the most iconic games we never talked about. So we figured we'd better talk about it. And there's going to be a little bit of a twist here. So you're going to want to pay attention, folks, because I chose these games. Jimmy G doesn't know what the theme is yet, and he won't until we reveal it for the next episode. And I'm going (laughs) to probably
1: change. I'm probably going to do a a change
0: up on... uh, I'm gonna. I'm gonna probably
1: do the same thing to Sean pretty soon too. But oh boy. after this that is episode, be interesting. we are going to be doing our special episode, and we are going to be talking about the Sega Genesis. And it looks like we're going to have a guest for the show.
0: Oh, awesome! And we're also going to have a contest for the show. So stay, yes, uh, yeah. stay listening for that. Should
1: we uh, reveal the? We, actually, let's wait and uh, work out the deet, the deets, yeah. as the well, youngsters yeah, today yeah, say, yeah, with our potential just, gust, and yeah. uh, we'll announce it next episode. Yeah.
0: In the meantime, we should announce a special thanks to our Patreon sponsors. We have Bingo. yet another new Patreon sponsor. Thank you to Jonas Rulo. I hope, I hope you said your name right.
1: Hey, hats off to you, if, especially if I was wearing a hat right now. I I'm just not... took
0: off my headphones to uh, Jonas Rulo. Um, oh, also thanks to I took Ro- out my earbuds to him. Also, thanks to Rory Coleman, Scott Lambert. What, what did Keesh. you say? I can't hear you because my earbuds are out. Yeah, I know. Shut up. <laughs> shut up. Shut up. I said shut up! Ah! So thanks, thanks also to our other Patreon sponsors such as Kyle Etter, Keith Sheehan, uh, Rory Coleman, Scott Lambert, Richard Valdez, Nate Lockhart, Michael D'Angelo, and Greg Polander. Yay! Thank you, everybody. And um, yeah, so I guess uh, that's what we have to say for Pie Factory Podcast episode thirty-nine. Let's oh, what was the new thing we're gonna say now instead of let's close the door in another episode.
1: Let's put the episode in a blender and hit liquefy.
0: All right, so once again, this is Screw It Sean. And Jimmy G. Talk to yous. Toodles. Oh, that's your line. No, my line was talk to yous. You can say toodles. Toodles.
1: This episode of the Pie Factory podcast was edited and produced by Hyde St. Pierre. Opening and closing theme is the Happy L composed by Sean Courtney. Love theme from Addenda and Errata was composed by Jim Gobel. Follow the Pie Factory podcast online via Facebook, on Twitter at Pie Factory PFP, or on Pie factorypodcast.com Support the show at Patreon.com slash Pie Factory Podcast.
0: Just, I, I get to say Toodles next time one of us wants to say Toodles, that's all.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah. Hey, so we've got an understanding. Except for Phil Collins, he's got a misunderstanding.
0: Exactly. It's yeah. must, it must be some.
1: Oh, there's some really good trails out of Lamont. There's the Centennial Trail, and then there's the Cal-Sag Trail, which opened up last year. Cal-Sag. Cal-Sag- oh, Sag Trail. That
0: sounds, that sounds so appetizing. Cal-Sag. And I it, know it uh, means Calumet Sag. There's a Portillo's the-
1: near, uh, near the end of it. Hmm. It's like 20 miles out, Portillo's 20 miles back. There you go. Those not in the no Portillos is an amazing hot dog chain out of Chicago, and I believe they have two also in the Phoenix metro area, and they might have a couple in
0: Florida if I'm not mistaken. Oh, and they're going to open a new one in the Chicago too. I don't know what. In the Chicago. In the Chicago. Oh, nice. Vert Vic Viper Victor Marlin talks about some really really high tech stuff, like basically like that. I like to call it the over screw it Sean's head segment because whenever I hear it, I'm doing the little hand gesture over my head indicating that everything he says is going right over my head. And it's like, okay, I have to take your word for this because I don't understand a damn thing you're saying.
1: You can only carry them for so long before they disappear, and if you kill a guard with it, the pickaxe dicks uh Hängen eure schlapp, da sie und stehen ab. Macht
0: doch mal einen Knoten rein, ob ein Scheifchen binden klappt, könnt ihr sie auch offen tragen, wie die Kolonialsoldaten hängen die Ohren schlapp.
1: Burma!